Producers and creators are the sources of all value on the planet. MC Lobster, the host of the top-rated business and investing podcast Cashflow Ninja, is on a mission with Producers Wealth to help producers create, protect, and multiply their wealth outside of Wall Street in any economy by creating systems and processes that help them increase their production, provides them with liquidity, passive income generators, and opportunities for enormous growth. Learn more about their time-tested and proven systems at yourownbankingsystem.com. That's yourownbankingsystem.com. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Here is your host inside the dojo, MC Laubscher. Hello, Cashflow Ninjas. MC Lobster here, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today, and in today's show, I'm joined by former Goldman Sachs Managing Director and Wall Street Insider, Nomi Prince. Nomi has a, a new book out called Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. I'm pretty excited to talk to her a little bit more about this book. Naomi worked on Wall Street as a managing director at Goldman Sachs and ran the International Analytics Group as a senior managing director at Bear Stearns in London before becoming an author. Now a journalist, public speaker, and media commentator, she is the author of six books, and her writing has been featured in the New York Times, Forbes Magazine, Fortune, The Guardian, and The Nation, among others. Are you an investor looking for passive cash flow but don't have the time to explore your options? Discover Real Estate. It's the best option for passive income that savvy investors have been turning to for years to generate income and build wealth. But the reality is real estate investing takes expertise, market knowledge, and time. So what do you do if you don't have the time or market knowledge? Discover how many business investors have found a way to generate cash flow from real estate investing. Their secret? They partner with proven private real estate investment funds. Four Peaks Capital Partners have created a system that allows accredited investors the opportunity to invest in undervalued assets to generate passive income and capital gains. Invest with the cash flow experts and sit back while Four Peaks does all the work. Call Four Peaks Capital Partners at 877-5-INCOME. That's 877-5-INCOME or go to privateincomeinvesting.com. An offer to buy or sell securities is only made by a private placement memorandum. Prospective investors must read the PPM in its entirety before making an investment decision. Naomi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be on it. Yes, yeah, so so glad to connect and excited to have you on. Can you uh, please share a little bit about your background and journey with my listeners? Sure. So my journey in finance, anyway, started on uh, Wall Street at Chase back in the late 80s, <laughs> um, right around the time where there's a lot of turmoil in the markets. I was a quant. I had a programming background, math degree, and just sort of wound up on Wall Street as, as one did at the time. That's where the jobs were. Uh, went from there to Lehman Brothers, um, where I worked on the futures and options desk, doing a lot of um, analysis, and actually working with a lot of central banks around the world on the initial sort of sales of treasury securities, government bonds, and so forth, um, relative to options and futures. Um, and then I wound up at uh, Bear Stearns in London, um, where I built their uh, financial analytics group sort of from scratch um, to 30-person group, where we covered all sorts of um, products and customers throughout Europe and um, Asia and the Middle East as well, and European products. 
I wound up on Wall Street or near Wall Street, actually, uh, 85 Broad Street for Goldman Sachs. Um, after that, uh, doing a lot of credit quantitative sort of analysis and, and running a group on that there. And that was around the time, honestly, where um, things were really coming to a head. They had a little bit when I was a bear in sort of the late 90s in terms of the um, debt and collateralized debt obligations, credit derivatives were just starting and so forth. And so there's a lot more um, risk and credit risk in, in the markets and a lot of kind of more shady uh, dealings with respect to customers and how things were spun towards investors and clients and so forth. And um, I had some real issues with that, um, particularly around Enron scandal and WorldCom and those scandals um, around the 9-11 time, um, which was around when I left. Goldman Sachs to become a journalist um, and also to work on just advising and explaining um, to, to people, to governments and so forth, what's really going on at the heart of the financial system. Now, you mentioned that you saw what was happening on Wall Street and things were not as uh, as you'd like it to be from a principal standpoint. So you kind of shared what, what's going on there. I mean, we've literally just seen one scandal after another. I just for the sake of interest started uh, looking at weekly scandals and uh, even doing it weekly is hard to keep up with. It's really hard and and some are big and some are small, but the ones that, you know, sort of really integrate into what big banks are doing and how they supply the leverage and the sort of technology and the, and the, um, investors to, to get involved in some of the more esoteric or more sort of potentially fraudulent types of transactions, um, that that's even, you know, sort of more scandalous, um, I think, because a lot of that stuff is kept very much under wraps. Um, and then you see things sort of coming out and poking out. I mean, we saw the financial crisis 10 years ago, all of the sort of mortgage related, subprime related toxic assets, you know, that were created um, on the back of a very small pipeline, a very small amount of subprime mortgages to begin with, um, were what ultimately tanked uh, the financial system and was why the big banks, particularly in the United States, needed so much help and have needed so much help um, over the last 10 years, such a massive subsidy from the Federal Reserve in the U.S. that became a global um, sort of strategy um, in the wake of their own uh, mismanagement of, of risk and, and their own fraud and all of the fines that they've paid since then has not really restructured or reformed them. It's merely um, pushed what they do uh, forward into the future or just sort of had it manifest in different ways. But but yeah, those scandals, um, they, they, st- they still come fast and furious because there's been no real, no real repercussions. Um, right. You know, some some companies might you know go down like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers or I, I both you know I worked at both of those institutions and then some um, benefit from from that fallout you know like a Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan Chase they just sort of scoop up the business and and and, and move along um, and that's not uh, a way to reform a system or to keep what, it. <laughs> right what is the culture inside Goldman and inside uh, Lehman or was inside Lehman and Bear Stearns is it just we're going to get in and try and make as much as we we possibly can. Uh, can you share a little bit of an insight to that with my listeners? Yeah, I mean, and, and again, this, this has evolved over, over over the time leading into the financial crisis and since, um, but at Lehman Brothers, for example, um, where I was working on, on, on futures and options and uh, with central banks in terms of treasury uh, products and so forth, there was a really strong um, desire to sort of compete with the rest of the street. So, so in that particular, you know, sort of part of the market in, in government bonds and foreign exchange and so forth, you want to compete with the street. Um, and so that required being very aggressive um, relative to competitors, you know, in the same area, like to Merrill Lynch or sort of other types of competitors at the time. Um, and so that had in, inside the, 
for a way to make people very sort of aggressive with each other. Um, you know, you're competing on the outside, but you're also competing with each other to, to, to ensure that your piece of whatever money gets brought into the door is, is adequately compensated at bonus time. Um, and so that becomes a thing. Um, you know, Bear Stearns, you know, same thing. There's a lot of aggressive sort of bonus posturing um, and a lot of, you know, let's get this deal out the door. And, and, and also the beginnings of... Um, sort of real aggressive um, storytelling about some of the products that were being sold to, to clients. I, I remember this one uh, situation with the central bank. I was in London and um, it was a piece of a sort of ugly mortgage that was being sold off the mortgage desk um, at Bear Stearns in New York by a trader. Um, they sold it sort of wrapped nicely uh, to the central bank. And the central bank said, wait, you know what? Now that we analyze it a little bit further because they didn't get all the analysis, we actually can't hold this type of security. It's too risky for our profile. Can we sell it back? to you. And the trader's like, sure, I'll give you 50 cents on the dollar for what I sold it to you. Um, and so I'm in the middle of this, look, we, 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 with all good faith, sold them a product. You cannot give them 50 cents on a dollar. You just sold it like three days ago. And it's like, well, that's what we're going to give. So you start to have all of those sorts of internal conversations of this sort of changing over into trying to help clients stay clients and, and you know, not sort of be screwed with the, no, this is what we need to make on the desk. And that started evolving at Goldman. Um, you know, when I wanted to develop systems to show clients the downside, particularly these credit trades that were, that were coming into play. And at the time, into Enron, a lot of corporations had some really bad loan portfolios and some massive problems and needed to get rid of them um, and make them look nice and go off their balance sheets and that's where banks came in um, a lot of stories around that weren't quite um, showing all the downsides uh, to investors to doing those trades I wanted to show the downsides and I, as I wrote my first book other people's money that came out in 2004 after I left um, I believe that credit derivatives which were part of those transactions were going to be the cause of the next financial crisis um, and, I, and I wrote this I don't say I wrote this it's actually in the book um, because they were so unregulated because they were so uh, leveraged because they were so potentially risky and because traders knew how to position them but investors didn't understand them um, and so inside the firm, though, there was a lot of um, competition within that to be the one that said, no, I, I sold that credit derivative. I sold that structure. I made that $9 million on that one deal. I made that $25 million on that other deal. And again, that started to um, become more and more uh, prevalent um, into the finan after I left as well, like into the financial crisis. Right. It sure seems that then it just, I mean, it just snowballs and snowballs and this just gets bigger and more aggressive and more riskier and the storytelling becomes <laughs> more and more. Your book, Collusion, uh, How Central Bankers Rigged the World, um, one of the best uh, business books of 2018 already acknowledged by Amazon. Fantastic read. Anomi, what was this, the backstory behind it? Um, what were some of the reasons uh, for the book? And uh, share a little bit about uh, the book and the collusion that you share in the book. Yeah, so, so again, going back to those Lehman days, one of the first places I, I went to um, overseas was, was actually China. I mean, back in, in, in the 90s um, with a, a very aggressive salesperson selling some of these products to central banks. I would explain them, he would sell them, and uh, we sort of went from, from there. And um, I realized, you know, how funny uh, sort of life is that way. You know, I'm, I'm back doing research in China for this book. But in between that, um, I wrote a few books. I talked about the financial crisis, and then I wrote a book called All the President's Bankers, which went back in history just 
on the U.S. side um, to how domestic and, and international policy was formulated really as a, as a partnership between the major bankers and banks um, of each era and the presidents that were running the country. And I sort of go through that as a uh, it's a, there's a lot of story um, in that in, in that book, but but from there um, and connecting it to the crisis and looking at the 10 year anniversary or leading into it, I had been invited uh, to speak at the Federal Reserve. It was um, it was at a three day conference um, that happens every year in Washington, um, where the Federal Reserve, the IMF, and the World Bank sort of invite all of their own to to Washington to talk for three days. And each day, it's in one of their different sort of homes. So it was the first day. It was the Fed. I was I was speaking on the topic of. Um, which they've selected um, as uh, why Wall Street isn't helping Main Street. So why all of these subsidies, which they recognize as quantitative easing, you know, the growing of their book, the sort of buying assets on the cheap, uh, well, actually paying, overpaying for, for the assets, but giving the money into, into the big banks wasn't somehow trickling down into um, real small business loans, the, the real economy, and so forth. Um, and so I got asked to sort of give my opinion on that. My opinion differed, differed from Janet Yellen's opinion at the time, which was that everything was fine, um, and that Wall Street banks were reformed, and it was only a matter of time. Again, this was eight years after the financial crisis, seven, eight years, when, when all of this would, would would happen. And I said, well, no, actually, <laughs> you understand how Wall Street works, and you understand that you gave them like this whole pile of money with no strings attached. Um, you know, it, it's not a great mental leap to understand why they didn't like online that money at those relatively cheap rates or, or try to help businesses or infrastructure in America or throughout the world or whatever, because you never made them. There was, you literally gave them a pass on, on bad behavior, you know, some fines here and there, but, you know, pretty big pass. Um, most of the CEOs were kept in their positions, as, you know, if their firms were kept in their positions. Uh, they're still in those positions. Um, and they made like a ton of money. And by the way, their cash reserves have quadrupled. Um, so they could help Main Street. They just don't have to. So they don't. That's, they go speculate. They, they, you know, create options. They buy their own shares. And, and you let them do all this stuff. So, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be surprising to you. Um, anyway, so out of that, there was a lot of people in the room from smaller central banks who um, sort of agreed with, with my interpretation of what was going on and, and had been caught out of this whole aggressive money creation, uh, conjuring quantitative easing policy because they couldn't create what the Fed or the Bank of Japan or the European Central Bank could create for sustaining their private banking system and their markets. They, if they did that, would create massive inflation in their countries. It would hurt the economy immediately. They just didn't have that float. Um, so there was this sort of interesting set of dialogues that came from that with uh, a lot of these central bankers contacting me and saying, oh, thanks, we're not crazy. Uh, <laughs> what you say makes sense. And, um, you know, we've been caught out. And so I started to really sort of analyze um, them and just the general global environment since the financial crisis vis-a-vis -vis these central banks and these central bankers who have become so historically powerful. I mean, they have created... This is the main G7 central banks, $21 trillion worth of you know, effectively conjured electronic money with which to you know, sustain government bond markets, corporate bond markets, ETFs in some cases, you know, bad mortgage assets in, in other cases, and just given that liquidity to the financial system. And that's, that's greater than the GDP of the United States. Um, and as a result of that, other countries stepped in, like China, um, and said, you know, wait a minute. Not that we don't similarly, we, we do stuff like that too, but we don't do it because the Fed told us to do it. Um, but we use our money to develop things and to like forge, you know, alliances with our partners and to like build, you know, bridges and to like have, you know, engineering projects and, you know, high speed railways and so forth. We're actually doing stuff with the money. Um, and, and you have been on this path of just basically subsidizing a, a rogue financial system. Um, and as a result, they've 
changed how they um, operate in the world and lots of other things have come from that from, from, a, from an alliance perspective. Um, but so I traced all that. I went to all of the, this, what I call pivot countries from uh, Mexico to Brazil to China to Japan to throughout Europe and so forth just to look at where um, that supply of money was most impacting either, uh, well, who it was impacting um, and how it was impacting those countries, those people um, and the power of those central bankers. You're listening to Nomi Prince on the Cashflow Ninja podcast. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Life settlement investments have allowed financial and banking institutions to not only buy their equity contractually, but also diversify their capital from any economic, market, and geopolitical risk. It's been part of the billion dollar blueprint followed by institutional investors. And if you're an accredited investor, you can also now participate in this vehicle with enormous growth potential. You can watch an informational webinar presented by one of the premier organizations providing life settlement investments for number of solutions at cashflowninja.com forward slash life settlements. My friend Dave Zook from The Real Asset Investor says you can be conventional or you can be wealthy. Pick one. The Real Asset Investor team creates value for investors looking for high yield returns from multifamily apartments, ATM machines, and self-storage investments. Their syndications offer attractive investment opportunities that produce strong cash flow, equity growth, huge tax incentives. They are truly passive and managed by a world-class team. To learn more about the exciting investment opportunities the Real Asset Investor offers, such as their multifamily, ATM, and self-storage syndications, please visit cashflowninja.com forward slash real asset investor. You're listening to Nomi Prince on the Cashflow Ninja podcast, and now back to our interview. Yeah, it's it's very very interesting because it's I like how you 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 termed it too this uh, a rogue financial system because um, there's an appearance of wealth again for a lot of folks but it hasn't trickled down to 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 Main Street so um, you know a, 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 a bank like J P Morgan buying back their own shares and raising the prices that's not wealth creation it's just sort of financialization and it seems like this is global can you speak a little bit to the financialization of markets I mean, now with computer trading, do we even have any free markets left anymore? So if we just talk about free market as being you know, a transparent set of information to all players, you know, sort of money coming out equally, you know, it being in profits and so forth, that's one thing. That's not at all. Um, what has happened because of the sort of artificial stimulation from these central banks. If we just take the U.S. banks, um, and I, I talk about this in the book, um, last year, um, the head of um, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation here that was created um, in 1933 in the wake of the Depression to effectively ensure that people depositing their money with banks wouldn't lose it um, in, in a crisis, which they had been doing after the crash of 1929, um, Thomas Honig, he basically addressed the U.S. Congress and he said, um, here's a report. I get all the information. I write, you know, I'm at the FDIC. We see all this stuff. And 99% of the profits of the major U.S. banks over the last year have gone into stock buybacks. So that doesn't mean all of their money. It doesn't mean they're not, you know, building, you know, new branches to take money's in, money in. It doesn't mean they're not making other asset investments and they have costs and stuff. But their profit um, has fundamentally gone into buying their own shares. Why have they had such a ability to do that? Well, because the Fed 
the central bank that's provided them all this liquidity to sort of exist over these years instead of really restructuring their books or reforming them um, has basically given it to them. I mean, it's provided it in return um, for assets they didn't want anyway um, or assets that came from the U.S. government that they didn't need anyway. Um, and they are using that to pay higher dividends and buy their, their own shares. That's the opposite of a free market where you know, profits, real profits could do that. But if their profits are then attached to money that's being provided by an, outside, an outside force, like a central bank that doesn't really have to uh, explain you know, how they made the decisions to create it to begin with, um, it just happens, then, then that's not free. That's, that's this, this sort of really um, unequal supply coming into one set of really powerful players. And so other people are kind of caught out of that, um, or other companies are caught out of that. I mean, you and I don't have a sort of endless supply of money to go invest with. And, and if we did have money coming in to invest with, we would have to make much more diligent investment choices because it's more like our money. Uh, whereas in the case of the, of the private banks, not only was it other people's money to begin with, you know, how they leverage deposits and, and loans and so forth, it's now an extra source of money coming in from, from the central banks. Um, and so all of that has really manipulated and distorted um, markets in ways that hadn't happened at all even before the financial crisis and, and continues to happen. Yeah, you make a really good point. If we just look at the average person out there, I mean, compared to the let's look at the aftermath of 2008, right? So these guys were bailed out and there were still bonuses. The party never stopped where the average person right now, they're saddled with uh, student loans, a lot of debt. Um, maybe they lost a home. Maybe they had to declare, uh, they had to declare bankruptcy. And now maybe they're starting to get back on their feet, but there's no place to put their savings, right? For them. They, what are they going to do? Put it in the bank at the zero point, you know, zero something. Right. So there's a, there's a huge disconnect between the two. Um, and it's, it's just great to hear that you, uh, you try to speak uh, to these folks um, at, at the Fed and, and just share with them what's going on really at ground level. Yeah, and I mean, at that time, interestingly enough, this was in um, middle 2015, and, and since then the Fed has raised rates by 2%. Um, but during that time, um, the savings accounts you mentioned are still paying like a quarter of a percent. And right. so there's, so even though, yeah, even though the Fed's, you know, normalized um, rates are started to in this, in this very trickling into a manner, um, that has not been given to the savers that, you know, sustain, that, that were the reason that there were the collateral or the hostages held financially in the beginning of the financial crisis period to be able to receive all of these subsidies to banks to begin with. So, for example, you know, I, I actually just did this. I, I, um, I uh, looked at all of the sort of savings accounts and, you know, I've talked to a lot of different people sort of even on the retiring basis on this and said, look, you should all literally take your money out of your Chase savings account, your certainly Wells Fargo savings account, your Bank of America savings account, wherever it is throughout the world that you're getting basically zero, and plus paying them fees for the luxury of getting zero. Um, and, and at the very least, you know, put it in an online bank, you know, put it in even, you know, American Express where you get 175 or, or even CIBC's online bank where you get like 1.9 or, or whatever. I mean, at least, at least get what the Fed funds rate is, which is the 
rate at which banks are receiving, um, you know, their money. At least, at least get that. Because what's happened in the, this last 10 years is um, because there's been nowhere to prudently save, save money in the financial system. I'm not talking about sort of buying assets outside of it, but just in terms of markets and banks and the, the financial um, or financialized component of the system, um, there, there has been nowhere to go. So if you're someone who, who doesn't, really understand stock markets or doesn't have the extra money to risk. Yeah, they're going up. Yeah, they've gone up because of all these external factors. But the reality is you're concerned. You want to know the money's actually going to be there tomorrow. And, you know, you, you, you know that in your past, you used to get five, six, seven percent on an account. And that was enough for you to like take your retirement and like have some money coming in and, and be um, stressless. Um, in, in a certain way, just, just mentally, you know, just emotionally. And now you can't even do that. Um, so, so this is like a big thing, like even in, in cash, um, to, to take it out of banks, not even to make the statement that banks have been really helped relative to the rest of everyone else, but just because financially, you know, you're losing nearly 2% every year, um, which is not a lot anyway, um, by, by subsidizing them even further. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So where you've mentioned in the book and uh, the collusion and uh, explain it really, really nicely and, and also the disconnect between, uh, between Wall Street and Main Street, where are we today with the economy and markets? What do you see what's going on right now and what, uh, what do we see ahead for 2018? Right. So, I mean, just taking that collusion um, of, of basically the major central banks, the sort of G7 central banks to, to where they are now, that 21 trillion that's been created right now, there is talk. Um, and I, I think it's really just talk of, of sort of the central banks tapering or sort of reducing the amount of subsidy, they don't call it that, uh, that they put into the market by letting some of um, the assets they bought for that, uh, for that money sort of trickle off you know, sort of sell off and not replace them. Um, the reality is, though, that the Fed's only let that happen to a very tiny percentage of its full portfolio. So it talks about the success of this entire operation over the last 10 years, and a mark of that success is supposedly the economy is doing better, and they can start to reduce the size of their subsidy. Again, my word, not theirs. Um, but they really haven't done that by, by, by too much. And one of the reasons for that is um, that they really are running scared that if they do something that even remotely tightens the supply of money in a really meaningful way, um, it could tank the markets. They're not as concerned about the economy because the economy is measured in so many different ways. Um, and it's not that healthy. I mean, GDP has been on average for the G7 countries less than 2% per year for the last 10 years, on average. It's not like it's doing that well. Um, inflation's been around, you know, 1% on average for the G7, you know, so it's, it's, it's a little bit of a sort of step up from that, but I mean, that's not massive. Wages have increased a little bit, but not compared to some of the costs you mentioned, you know, whether it's student loans, um, cost of education, the cost of healthcare and so forth. Um, and in general, we, we have more families um, living paycheck to paycheck than we have before, given what they receive from an income standpoint versus what things cost. None of that's really healthy. Um, what looks healthy are the stock markets. However, they are, um, potentially exposed to, to this tightening, to this, this lack of the free sort of ish money that's been coming into them over these 10 years, um, if that really goes away. And so what we're seeing now is more volatility in those markets, more sort of moves to the downside, even though they're still kind of in an upward trend because this money is still available, um, that is showing the central bankers that, look, if you do too much, um, we're just going to tank. Um, and, and that's going to be a problem because ultimately that means all the debt um, that has been issued in, in corporates, in emerging markets, even in governments um, over the 
10 years of cheap money will start to have to be repaid at more expensive levels. Um, and that will cause defaults and that will cause more cracks um, in the system. And I do see that um, as being a potential outcome over the next year or two years or so forth, um, whether the central banks raise rates or tighten um, meaningfully or not because of that overhang that's, that's been created over, over the past 10 years. We're seeing that in emerging markets. And even on days now when uh, the stock market, for example, in the U.S. is up, um, yeah, emerging market funds are, are seeing massive withdrawals. And part of that is because these emerging markets are, are over leveraged in debt. They've had to take more money out to, to function in this world where they have to compete with you know, the central banks that subsidize other financial systems. And they have real economic problems coming in and capital tends to fly out of those places more quickly than it comes into those places, um, even on the days that the market has been rising. And that's another indication um, that we can continue to see more cracks in the overall um, global markets coming from those places first and then moving into the the more you know sort of major countries or the G7 type countries. Very, very interesting. Now, Naomi, a core message in our show is to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, and principles to future generations, not just money. So if you cannot pass on any money to future generations, and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? Um, well, first of all, they'd be balancing wealth with what happiness means to you. And I, I personally think that the, the, the right balance also has to do with, with inner peace and not to get all like yogi about it. Cause that's like not my thing, but, um, I, I just think that, that the more control you have over, um, your finances and, and assets, the, the more at peace you are and that, that creates happiness. So for example, um, you know, over the years that, that, you know, between when I left banking to becoming a journalist and there's a lot more money that gets paid out to a banker than to a journalist. <laughs> I'm sure everybody can, can know that um that um i i was more at peace because I, I i had i had saved i hadn't over leveraged my own sort of personal um expenses to an extent where i was buying things that like i couldn't afford if my um finances were to be reduced by by whatever um that doesn't mean that you know i or other people aren't exposed to risk but it does mean to just make sort of choices about what you really need um versus what you want and if you can sort of you know, go with the need versus the want, you'll actually be able to have more money available um, to invest in your future and to sort of be more peaceful with it. So, so that's one thing also not, not sort of along those same lines, um, not betting what you can't afford to lose. Um, so if you do want to get involved in particular aspects of finances, um, you know, understand what your downside is. I mean, this was big in terms of what I did and why I left Goldman. I was, I was very much about analyzing the downside of, of financial investments, um, fi you know, from, from a numeric standpoint as well. So understand um, that you have to be very careful um, with what you're exposed to. Um, and then the third thing is, you know, buy what you can use. Um, along the lines of what you need, you know, buy what you can use. You can use a house, you can use a boat, you know, you can use, you know, if you're, I don't know, an artist, you can use a trip to like wherever to paint. I mean, wh whatever it is, um, you know, spend money on, on, on what you can use or what your family can use um, because that will ultimately have a wealth um, effect in of itself. If there's a problem that you face later on, you can use whatever that is to, to rent out or to make um, sort of incremental income on if you really need to. Um, and that, that relates to sort of hard assets and just being in control of um, what you can actually touch. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that. Nomi Prince, Collusion. Nomi, where can uh, they get a copy of the book and where can uh, listeners reach out to you, follow you, and stay informed of all of the projects that you're involved with? 
Um, thanks. So, I mean, it's, it is available online at you know, various Amazons around the world. I think um, it's definitely out on, uh, on the U.S., it's out in the U.K., Canada, Australia, I think. Um, but just in general, so Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, your independent bookstore. I mean, one of the other things, um, I didn't mention the three points, but you know, helping your community, helping independent bookstores. Um, I know they've been very supportive of the book. Um, you know, throughout different places. Uh, my website is just my name, so it's www.nomeprince.com. Um, that's also my Twitter handle, at nomeprince. Um, I tend to tweet more than other types of social media because I consider handle the smaller character count <laughs> more frequently. Um, and so that's a place to follow me as well. Fantastic. Naomi, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge and providing so much value for my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the United States. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Learn how to find the best deals by downloading your free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Thank you for joining me again on the Cashflow Ninja. Thank you for all your support. You rock. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here at the Cashflow Ninja, please subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at cashflowninja.com or text cashflowninja to 44 I'm also posting daily videos on Facebook and YouTube and will live stream weekly starting May 2018. To make sure you don't miss any of the live streams, please like and subscribe to my Facebook and YouTube platforms. I'm also dropping content on Instagram daily. Be sure to follow us on Instagram to get in on the action. I want to thank you for spending your most precious resource with me today, your time. That's our show for today. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objectives, situation and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.